Hey everyone, and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray, and we will be checking in with Adam Boileau in just a moment to hear about all the week's security news. And don't forget, I am doing a whole other security podcast these days called Seriously Risky Business, and that's the one I do with our very own staffer, Tom Uren. Uh, He's also doing his own podcast with The Gruck once a week that gets published into our new Risky Business News RSS feed. So if you want another five InfoSec podcasts a week featuring myself, Tom Uren, The Gruck, and Catalan Kimpanu, uh, just search for Risky Business News in your podcatcher and uh, you will find it. But yes, news with Adam in just a moment and then it will be time for this week's sponsor interview and this week's show is brought to you by Corelight, the company that maintains Zeek. And yeah, if you need a network sensor uh, for security stuff, particularly one that can operate at insane scale, uh, you do want to check out Corelight. Uh, but yeah, Corelight's federal CTO, Gene Schaefer, uh, joins us in this week's sponsor interview to talk about whether or not the White House's executive order on Zero Trust is actually changing anything. And um, spoiler alert, uh, it already is. So we talk about a few things in that interview, uh, you know, all around federal government stuff, uh, American federal government stuff. So do stick around for that one. Uh, but Adam, let's get into the news right now. And, uh, you know, bombshell blockbuster report out of China. They have uh, uh, unpicked a, a NSA campaign targeting one of their poor, innocent universities. Uh, and uh, yeah, you know, terrible, terrible embarrassment for the NSA. But is it? So they have uh, docked a bunch of NSA tools and talked about some of the techniques. Uh, and they have pulled the attribution hat out of the bag uh, and figured out who was in charge of this dastardly operation uh, against their very innocent university full of hypersonic missile research. Uh, None other than Mr. Robert Joyce. Yeah, somehow they figured out that Rob Joyce was involved uh, with tailored access operations, the the hacking division of the NSA, which I I don't think even exists anymore, actually. I think they call it something else now. But... um, you know, I went back and I tried to figure out how on earth China was able to figure this out about uh, about Rob Joyce. And I think Rob may have slipped up, actually, right? So I went back and there was a conference talk he did in 2016. And uh, look, I've pulled together some excerpts where his, his OPSEC slipped to the point where they might have figured out that Rob was involved with uh, TAO. Here are the excerpts that I found. It's subtle, but if you listen, it's there. I'm from Tailored Access Operations, and I will admit it is very strange, right, to be in that position up here on a stage in front of a group of people. It's not something often done. We produce in TAO foreign intelligence for a wide range of missions. We're doing nation-state exploitation. See, I think if you listen carefully, you can, you can put it together. Yeah, just like between the lines, you're right. It is very, very subtle, but you know, with enough experience in the industry and enough threat intelligence information, maybe yeah, you could you could put two and two together and figure out who done it. Yeah, yeah. Basically, Rob got up at a conference and said, "Hey, I'm the guy who does the China hacking." Uh, so somehow, <laughs> somehow, China managed to figure it out. So first of all, the target in this case, right? So this is a joint report by like 360 and um, you know various bits of the Chinese government, but it's the Northwestern Polytechnical University. 
This is the this is the university they're complaining about being owned. Um, this university is already sanctioned by the U.S. government, and <laughs> if you Google around, like the you know you will often find things from this university where they're doing stuff like announcing the latest test results from their hypersonic missile development program. Right? Like, geez, why would they be an intelligence target? <laughs> yes, exactly right. What, what possible bone of contention about aerospace development is there between the United States and China at the moment? Hmm. No way that's a legit target. <laughs> but it looks like this is old stuff, right? Yes, they've um, they've provided a list of critical facilities where American hackers operate out of, such as Fort Meade, <laughs> uh, and a bunch of tools and techniques they've seen, such as you you know using uh, proxies to you know broker your access into the environment, you know some Windows Trojans, uh, all of which seem to overlap quite well with the I don't know shadow brokers and Snowden and other up to the minute threat intelligence. Yeah, yeah. So I think what we did learn though from this reporting is they managed to dox a couple of NSA front companies. So that's nice. But it's it's also like, that's why you use front companies. It's not so that they're obscured <laughs> years later. It's so that at the time, uh, you know, people can't figure out what's what. I think the biggest thing that I learned about this is Rob is a little bit older than I thought he was. Uh, so he's got to fill me in on his skincare regime or whatever. And uh, it's his birthday next week. So I think that's, uh, they're the big takeaways uh, from my end on this one. <laughs> yes, big Chinese intrusion truth doxing going on there. Now we can all wish Rob a happy birthday. So <laughs> I yeah. guess from from the Risky Business Production team. Happy birthday, Rob. For yeah, week. that's for the next for next <laughs> week. And uh, I have uh, linked through to a great thread by uh, J.A. Guerrero Saad, uh, a.k.a. Jags, uh, where he basically just ridicules this uh, this work from China. So, yeah, I just I just wonder, I, I, I figure, just kicking this around with a few people I know, like we figure this whole release is really about trying to find a domestic audience and whip up a bit of sort of, you know, anti-Yankee outrage uh, within China rather than trying to move the needle outside of China, you know? That's all I can come up with here. Yeah, yeah. This doesn't really feel like signalling, you know, for an international audience. I guess there's a little bit of, well, you know, the US have been, you know, putting out documentation about some, you know, Chinese state hackers and, you know, sticking their faces on wanted posters and stuff. So there's a little bit of, you know, maybe tit for tat. But yeah, it very much feels like domestic audience stuff rather than something that we you know, on the Western InfoSec Twitters uh, would take seriously and do anything other than just laugh uproariously at. Yeah. Well, you know, thus concludes the uproarious laughing at uh, at them bit. Uh, <laughs> and let's move on to some other news. We've got a bit of a ransomware section to talk about this week. It's been a big week for ransomware. One that's been unfolding over the last couple of weeks, which we haven't spoken about yet, is this uh, ransomware attack in Montenegro, which initially the government was pinning on Russia. They were saying that this was, you know, uh, some sort of state-backed Russian disruption campaign designed to, you know, make life tough. And then the Cuba ransomware gang claimed credit. And uh, the latest news is that um, the FBI and French officials uh, are actually on their way or, or have arrived in Montenegro to investigate uh, the attack, uh, according to this piece by Jonathan Grieg over at The Record. Yeah, the reporting was that there was pretty widespread disruption of government services uh, around Montenegro. And I guess it, it, you know, you would want to believe that it was a, you know, a state-sponsored attack coordinated and, and organised, and that maybe, you know, is a great initial you know, position to have when you're trying to figure out what's going on. Um, you know, buys you a bit of leeway with the, the populace. Uh, but yeah, the, the sad truth that it might actually just be straight up ransomware, you know, and maybe it happens to be in Russian interests as well. But yeah, the, the fact that, you know, an entire nation can be crippled just by common card ransomware is a, is the sad truth these days. So Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, there's a another ransomware attack in Chile, which is causing untold uh, drama, apparently. Uh, 
hit their quote Microsoft tools and their VMware boxes. So, um, you know, good luck to Chile in, in sorting that one out. There's been some sort of more concerning attacks in Italy. Yes, there's been reports of attacks against uh, Italy's like internal energy marketplace and other companies you know, in the energy sector there. Um, obviously, disruption of energy in Europe is pretty topical at the moment. Um, so, you know, anything that, that has a potential to be, you know, in those places in advance, you know, or even if it is, once again, just ransomware, stealing some data, either way, uh, pretty important when the energy sector is under such pressure there. Um, it does sound like a bunch of data got nicked, um, but... You know, we don't really know a whole heap beyond that and what the actual impact is. Well, I mean, it's really hard to keep up uh, these days. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we got some more detail on a a ransomware attack that picked up a a bit of interest on Twitter a couple of weeks ago involving a UK uh, water water supply company. Uh, So Klopp, you know, uh, uh, owned them. And I think initially they were publishing screen caps and saying, look, we own London Water or something. And it turned out to be like a different water supply company so everyone was like ha 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 you're idiots but you know Lorenzo's got a story up at Vice now where it looks like they really did have access to control systems and could have like messed around with stuff and that's not really what you want in your critical infrastructure. No, there's a bunch of screenshots of mimic diagrams and other, you know, kind of human machine interface stuff that you would expect on the operational tech side of the network where the, you know, actual plumbing is controlled, the literal plumbing rather than the internet plumbing. Um, And there's been a bunch of commentary from, you know, people who are experts in the you know industrial control system space saying well you know just some of these systems are read only sometimes you know you have these diagrams that don't necessarily mean you can click on the valves and turn them off and on um but the fact that you can see those at all does mean you're pretty deep inside you know a a sensitive environment and one thing that concerns me is if you know if the narrative there is well they didn't really get it you know they haven't proved that they had access to yeah you don't want to put them in a position where they're gonna feel like they they need to prove it where they where they have to right and and having done this myself like being in control systems environments and specifically gone to the read-only systems so that we don't make mistakes and accidentally click the wrong thing and, and surprise you know release sewage or something um the, the technical, like once you're in a position to see those, the, it really is a choice as an attacker whether you go for stuff that works or stuff that's read only or, or whatever else. Um, and I wouldn't want to provoke people into having to prove that access. Like that's just not a path. Let's just accept if you can see that stuff, let's just call that good enough and not try and, you know, rules weasel the attackers on whether or not they really had access. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, nothing good comes of that path. So no. let's just leave that one lie, experts. It was probably fine, seems to be the, um, you know, the ICS security uh, uh, take, right? But uh, you don't really want to rely too heavily on that, I guess, is the, yeah, is the exactly. point, right? Um, exactly. But, you know, you just see stuff like this and you think, you know, I mean, we've been arguing for it for years that, um, uh, you know, SIGIN agencies, et cetera, should, um, should probably take this stuff. The, the, the cyber parts should probably do a bit more about this in terms of uh, combating these types of uh, organisations. And I think this this is just one of those stories where you think, geez, you know, how is this tolerable? Yes, it's just not uh, agreed. And then the hounds should once again be released. Yes. Uh, late developing story, the IH, uh, IHG Hotel Group apparently is being ransomware right now, but that is causing a lot of disruption. Like no one can book anything, like their systems are down. It's a, it's a, it's a real Oof. mess. But it, I, I got to say, it's nice to see uh, a ransomware crew attacking uh, a hotel reservation system instead of an APT crew. Yeah, that's a nice change. I mean, obviously the, the APT crew is in there and probably mad because all of their you know intelligence is now being locked up as well. Well, and they're going to get incident responsed. Right? <laughs> and they're going to get responded and yeah, yeah, so... You know, so those attackers, you know, the the crypto locker people who are in there, like, 
you're messing with active intelligence gathering right there. Like, think about natural interest. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, the FBI and CISA have released an alert uh, saying that uh, that uh, ransomware uh, ransomware attackers are going to target more K twelve schools and um, school districts in the United States. So yeah, like this is our long way of saying scumbags are still scumbags doing scumbag stuff. Yep. Yeah. Pretty much. And yeah. We could fill the whole show with stories of you know specific scumbags, but. Yeah, it's just, that's just normal now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and there's uh, QNAP NAS devices that people <laughs> oh, connect to bless. the internet. Like some ransomware crew actually used Oday. Like it's been patched now, but it was Oday when they started using it and they've been ransomwareing stuff and saying, you know, give us a thousand bucks to unlock your NAS. So yeah, drama, drama, drama. Now staying on the topic of scumbags, let's talk about Cloudflare. Uh, <laughs> we didn't really, you know, this has been a, a thing that's been building up over like a month or two where Kiwi Farms, which is just one of those like 8chan-esque sites full of Nazis, uh, was being, and I, I say hosted by Cloudflare because ultimately that's what a CDN kind of does, right? Like if the content is coming directly from the edge and it's cached there, guess what? You're hosting it. Uh, Cloudflare says that it's a network provider, just like, you know, they're providing fiber connectivity or something, but you know, they only deliver content, right? So calling them a network provider seems uh, a little bit stupid. Uh, there was a big campaign to get Kiwi Farms kicked off Cloudflare. Cloudflare, of course, dug in and said, but my freedom of speech, right? And refused to do it. And then eventually the pressure got so great that they, you know, they dropped them something like 48 hours after it, it, their most rec recent statement saying that they wouldn't do that. Um, they say it was because there was an escalation of like violent threats on the site, but I suspect it was just that the pressure was starting to get to them. Maybe some customers were going to cancel, maybe even investor, some of their larger investors were, were starting to get a bit uh, annoyed by it. But uh, just a, the latest example in Cloudflare being Nazi cuddlers. And, you know, people are taking a victory lap because Kiwi, Kiwi Farms has been booted, but they still host a whole bunch of other, uh, of, uh, of other hate sites, right? And, you know, this idea that critics expect Cloudflare to do detailed moderation because they say, oh, well, we can't be expected to moderate this, you know, we, we, we uh, provide connectivity to like half the internet. No one expects them to do that. But maybe having a staffer once a month sit down and go, okay, let's have a look at which major hate sites we're, we're hosting and maybe kick them might be a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I think even if it was a let's throw the worst, you know, 0.05% of our customers off the platform every month, like that seems like good housekeeping. Like go out and sweep your front yard, Cloudflare, you know? But, then, and, but that's the thing. It's ideological for them. They say that it's a freedom of speech issue and that it's important to provide hosting to these people. Meanwhile, Kiwi Farms gets kicked off. They wind up with DDoS Guard, which is Russian, and they kicked them off and said, lol, we don't want these guys. What are you, crazy? <laughs> yeah. I, I do struggle with them coming out and saying, you know, trying to compare themselves to a phone company when so they said, like just like the phone company doesn't terminate your line if you say awful racist bigoted things blah 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 and it's like they are providing a very different service to being a phone company it just makes me super angry when they use those kinds of fallacious arguments but to that's all they justify have. their position that's all they have i mean you know they 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 provide service like god i mean fastly in a reply to someone on Twitter, Fastly, which I'll just, you know, just, just disclaimer, they're a Risky Biz sponsor. I did see in a reply to someone else, they say, well, we don't host this sort of stuff. You know, something along those lines, which is, you know, you can sign with us and, we, you know, you don't have to worry about us uh, providing similar services to similar people, right? It's not that hard. It's really not that hard to not, 
you know, provide services to gigantic forums teeming with Nazis. Anyway, like the whole thing is just really dumb, but this is this comes up every couple of years and people celebrate when they make a decision to remove like the absolute like single worst of the worst of the worst, but they're still hosting so much of this shit. Anyway, staying with our scumbag theme, again, we're going to keep keep <laughs> rolling on the scumbag theme. Krebs on security, uh, Brian Krebs, has this like amazing story here about how hacker crew violence is spilling off the internet into the real world. I mean, we're talking uh, firebombings and shootings and all sorts of like crazy stuff. Yeah, he, he, he broached this idea of, you know, violence as a service where, you know, when you get into an argument with someone on the internet, and this is mostly coming out of the, the SIM swapping scene at the moment on Telegram, um, where, yeah, you can just, you know, like I want this person's house a brick thrown through the window in, you know, Ireland or wherever it happens to be, and then a local service provider, you know, will do so for a few thousand euro or whatever it is. Um, and, I mean, that a, is a disturbing kind of development, but also, you know, a natural consequence of, you know, of a much broader applicability of cybercrime, you know, to more general criminals. Um, and so, you know, if you've got money, you've got, you know, people who are willing to do this kind of stuff. I mean, probably better it's happening on Telegram than it is on, you know, one of the old school crime, you know, underground forums, you know, the, the Silk Roads or whoever else. Um, but... Yeah, seeing the stuff spilling out into the real world and, and, you know, concerning that it might end up being taken up more broadly by, you know, the underground, it's not, it's not a great place to be. No, no, it's not. But it's a, you know, it's a hell of a read. So I'd recommend people uh, click through yes. on that one in this week's show notes. Uh, so Project Raven, this was the program in the United Arab Emirates where there was a bunch of ex-NSA people doing surveillance for the government there and uh, it was all pretty sketchy. Chris Bing and some of his colleagues at Reuters cracked this wide open in 20, back in 2019. Uh, we've seen a bit of movement on that story, Adam, uh, involving a settlement uh, uh, between the US government and some of these uh, former NSA staffers who were doing the work. Yes, the State Department uh, has announced that uh, three of the people involved in this uh, are now banned for a number of years from working on anything that's related or is covered by the ITAR, International Traffic and Arms Regulations, uh, which you know covers a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and so that, I guess, is a smaller punishment than perhaps well, some would have expected. But they also had to give up their security clearances and cough up $1.7 million, which is yes. going to sting a little. And uh, apparently they managed to get this somewhat lenient uh, treatment because they'd cooperated with the uh, the FBI, perhaps had cooperated with the FBI. Yeah, but I think, you know, overall this is really just to kind of send a message to everybody else that this is a thing that can come back to get you and there's consequences and you have to kind of think about what you do once you leave, you know, you leave the fort or wherever else you happen to be. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think this maybe it feels like a fair outcome, you know, that they did... They probably should have thought about this a bit more clearly before they did it, uh, and you know, seeing some consequences delivered is good for you know the proliferation of nation-state capabilities in general. I mean, the three-year ban seems like a bit whatever, but for me, it's the one point seven mil. Like that's even if it's that's split between bucks. them, like that's a few dollary dues, you know? <laughs> yeah, that certainly is. And although when I first read this, I was a little bit you know having your brain violate ITAR. That's kind of a you know I'm a little bit jelly. <laughs> You know, a little bit jelly that your brain your brain isn't regulated by the state. Isn't regulated, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, small amount of envy there, but not not really. <laughs> uh, coolest hack of the week: uh, a traffic jam in Moscow, thanks to mm, hacks. Apparently, so like good. that's the way the story goes. 
Yes, uh, the report is that uh, some people either got into or just used the available public APIs for Yandex's taxi service uh, to order many, many, many taxis uh, into the middle of uh, central Moscow, thus causing a traffic jam, uh, which... You know, if that was some you know Ukrainian kid, then good on you. That's a that's a funny jape. Uh, they <laughs> took over. They managed to like you know calm it down pretty quickly. Obviously, you spot a lot of physical taxis going somewhere. But you know, that's it's a very twenty twenty two story. Yeah, it's wonderful, and I just I just love the videos that were going around Twitter of just like this area <laughs> in Moscow, just like taxis, everything, just taxis <laughs> everywhere, right? So and the traffic's bad enough in Moscow already, and then yeah, you add this to the mix. Like it's just that's just good quality hacking. I'm 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 in for this. I remember years and years and years ago there was a problem in moscow where basically you could pay to make your car a police car and people were doing this to like beat the traffic so you could bribe someone or whatever or it might have even been a sanctioned program and you could make your car a police car with like lights and sirens and stuff and so many people were doing it that they wound up just like the streets were just clogged with wee woo wee woo um it's quite funny but uh that was and that was a long time ago so yeah i don't know i don't know if they still uh allow that uh now let's take talk about the the the, the gigantic tiktok breach uh, a couple of days ago uh, words started circulating that uh, TikTok's source code and user data was everywhere and someone grabbed a database with like, you know, two billion entries and, um, you know, it was all a very big deal. It looks like, though, what this person may have obtained is actually some sort of scrape DB held by a third party containing only public stuff. So it looks like a bit of a fizzer. Last I saw, the person who was hyping this up on breach forums uh, has been banned <laughs> from the breach forums. And, uh, you know, the whole thing looks like a bit of a fizzer. Although I do wonder how source code got in a scrape DB. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a little bit unclear. I mean, the original report said that they'd found the, like an Alibaba cloud instance that was poorly protected, you know, bad password or something like that. Uh, and there was a few gigs of data, you know, some of it in database, like SQL dump format and some source code for something. Um, and it was being described as uh, some TikTok and some WeChat. Um, and, and that that already rang a bit of a bell it, for me because I'm like, why would they, you know, that doesn't make sense. Yes, because when the one's Tencent, one's ByteDance, right, they wouldn't necessarily yeah. be in the same database. Uh, and so the idea that was a scrape from somewhere else or, you know, someone else who'd been collecting data through whatever mechanism and, you know, it was their system rather than, you know, one of the TikTok systems itself. Um, the data in it sounds like it you know, does contain real user data. It's not fake data or anything like that, but yeah, probably publicly obtained. And even then, I mean, if it's a you know, couple of hundred million users or a billion users or whatever it happens to be, like that's still a reasonable trove of data because then you can do queries that, you know, you're not supposed to be able to do. Uh, and I mean, TikTok has said that they have, you know, scraping prevention mechanisms and whatever else. So, you know, if you were, if whoever did it was able to bypass those controls and get data out, that's still you know kind of useful things to do for whatever whatever purpose you need that data. But yeah, does not sound like it was actually TikTok. It's not clear what the source code involved was for. Maybe it was for the scraper itself. Rather yeah, that'd than, be funny, right? <laughs> yeah, rather than than TikTok or WeChat. Um, so unclear, but. Either way, there's still a lot of data in those platforms. And you know, even if it is public, it's still useful for something. But it's a video-based platform, right? So I sort of feel like when you see something like a massive Facebook scrape or even a Twitter scrape or whatever, like that's one thing. But I just wonder if you get as much value out of a yeah. TikTok scrape, you know? Yeah, no, you're, you're probably right. And I mean, you know, social graph data, you know, the kind of metadata that isn't video stuff may be useful for but something. But you're not going to get uh, that from a public but, scrape. So yeah, much. well, exactly I mean, you right. might get yeah. the relationships between a few TikTok accounts, but you're not going to get the holy grail, which is TikTok ingesting everybody's address books, right? And they've got yes. that on their back end. And that's the valuable social graph data, you'd think. 
Yes, yeah, exactly. And, and someone may will breach TikTok and get it out and then we can compare and contrast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Samsung apparently had an incident. It's not really clear uh, who, why, what, when, where. Um, but, you know, they, they're talking about... They take some, security very seriously, though. Yes, of course. They take uh, <laughs> security and privacy very seriously. Um, <laughs> but, you know, someone's popped up on a forum selling some info. Um, but a little bit too early to, to know what's going on. I think uh, there's a rumoured uh, uh, incident with Orange Cyber Defence as well but again not very clear how much data is involved if it's a big deal or whatever if it's just some old creaky database full of -of out-of-date info that that someone managed to get but yeah certainly a lot of um a lot of action uh on the data breach front as always now i i this is the one i i I shouldn't have done it i posted on twitter yesterday gee there was an interesting hack that kind of went under the radar uh and we're going to talk about it in the show and then of course everyone wants details and me being you know kind of a (laughs) <laughs> didn't, didn't reply with anything, but uh, there was an interesting attack against one of those cryptocurrency like bridges, right? I've got a write up here from Medium, which is pretty like I think it's been either translated, like machine translated, or just written by someone who doesn't have an excellent grasp on writing in English. But it's interesting because this attack, what looks like happened is they, and, and the attack ultimately failed, right? Because there was a good response. But what, what looks like happened is someone BGP hijacked an AWS slash 24 and then managed to get themselves a valid DV cert for the front end of this like cryptocurrency project. So we're able to really cleanly impersonate uh, uh, this project without throwing any certificate errors. And that's I'll tell you why it's interesting. And I mean, it is just interesting on the surface of it, but it's not the first time this has happened, right? But this is, uh, yeah, what did you make of this anyway? Yeah, I mean, certainly BGP hijacking is such an old school technique. And I think, you know, many, many people who work in the security industry probably haven't, you know, seen or, or understand like the reality of how BGP really works uh, and what you can do. And so seeing one of these is always a bit of an eye opener for, you know, younger people in the industry. Um, and yeah, smoothly done. Uh, it does leave a bit of a trail and does get snapped pretty quickly by you know network engineering people. But uh, getting to the point where an organization like this, which is like a, a cross cryptocurrency bridge thing, can respond to, uh, like understand what's going on, respond to a BGP or DNS or whatever else hijack and get something done. And I think in this case, Amazon were pretty supportive in you know getting a more specific route advertised quickly uh, to take it out. But yeah, this is an old school attack that is still very, very relevant. Uh, and now there's so much money in it, uh, it is worth you know actually burning the capability that it takes. You know, because the the trail of BGP hijacking is still you know it's pretty detailed. It's hard to get away with uh, long term, but for a quick attack, yes. yeah. And as you say, like getting the cert issued, you know, doing it very, very smoothly you can do it fast, faster than anyone can then can respond. And that's, a, you know, I think a surprise for some people that it still works like that. Well, I mean, for me, the interesting part was that they were able to get around SSL, right? Like they were able to get a valid cert uh, for this thing very quickly, which of course makes sense. But, you know, we hadn't really seen attackers doing that previously. Now, I, you know, Catalan was asking me, well, why do you think this is interesting? I'm like, well, we haven't seen a public case study on something like this before. <laughs> And he said, yeah, you know, there was one, it's, it's happened before, there was one earlier this year, a South Korean uh, crypto exchange. The funny thing is, like, I go straight to Google and type South Korean, you know, cryptocurrency, BGP, SSL. The second hit that comes up was uh, one of Tom Uren's newsletters that I edited. So I don't know how that sort of <laughs> fell out of my brain. But yeah, sure enough, it did happen 
once earlier this year, which if anything makes it more interesting, right? Because it was also targeting a crypto project. So the BGP uh, hijack combined with the issuance, and they're not using Let's Encrypt. What they're using are these, um, uh, like go get SSL in this most recent instance, like a free trial, 90 day trial of a domain validated cert. And you just sort of think, I mean, how many organizations are actually, I mean, if you're a really big organization that does monster traffic, right, you are going to notice when you get BGP hijacked, right? But for some of these small to medium organizations or even online shops or whatever, like uh, how many of them are actually set up to identify this and quickly remediate it? And, you know, if you don't have a responsive connectivity provider or, you know, cloud host, what do you do, (laughs) you know? Yeah, exactly, right? I mean, keeping an eye on certificate transparency would be a great way to to spot this sort of thing. But, you know, as you say, not everybody is in a position to, you know, real-time certificate transparency logs. Like, that takes actual work to to get right, unless you're a bank or someone that's really worried about phishing and, you know, has other reasons to be watching that stuff you're probably not going to have that. And, you know, the kudos to Amazon for responding so quickly. And, you know, I don't know how many other providers you would be able to find someone who understood what you were talking about and have them take action that quickly. Yeah. And I think, you know, in the past, BGP hijacking has been one of those things that everyone's known has been possible and is, you know, happens on occasion, but it's very noisy and it's not great for intelligence gathering because it gets spotted so quickly. So we haven't seen it really used. Now that there's real money in crypto, involved like you can get the benefit of a very rapid noisy attack Uh, and i think that's the reasons why i guess we've seen a couple is that yeah it's there is a reason to do it like there's some utility for that style of you know quick noisy smash and grab uh, which it's kind of this feels like driving a truck through the front of a cryptocurrency bank you know yeah no totally and i i guess something that concerns me though is now that this is a proven technique right a proven sequence we might start seeing it pop up elsewhere yes. and don't forget too certificate authorities aren't all created equal when it comes to actually committing stuff into transparency logs Yes, exactly right. And uh, that whole infrastructure is still pretty... Bad. Yeah, (laughs) just immature and it's just not well geared up for near real-time response. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So anyway, that's one to watch, right? Because that was always the thing. Oh, you don't really need to worry so much about BGP hijacking because, you know, we've got that SSL layer up the top, which, you know, keeps everything kosher. But yeah... You know, in a, in a world of like free trial DV certs from CAs that might not be doing an amazing job, like, yeah, it's uh, it's just something we have to think about uh, again uh, these days, Adam. So, yes, boo. I uh, got a story here from Matt Burgess uh, looking at... Um, you know, just more Microsoft technique here. I just thought this was kind of interesting. Uh, someone has taken a look at this Windows 11 automation tool called Windows Power Automate and, you know, how to do bad stuff with it. What did, what did you think of this one? Yeah, this is a really interesting story, not because it's surprising, I guess, uh, in terms of the technique. This is, a you know, Microsoft has an automation tool. Post-intrusion, you can do it, you use it to do stuff, right? That's no surprise, no different than when they introduced PowerShell. Um, but what's interesting here is that people's understanding of what's their computer and what's not, you know, is doesn't match with the reality of it. This is a system whereby, you know, in Windows 11, you can automate fleets of computers to do stuff in the cloud. And essentially, Microsoft has built you know, large-scale command and control infrastructure for bots as a service built into the operating system. And so you can register a Windows computer that you've compromised to your, you know, Microsoft Power Automate account uh, in the cloud and then just send it commands and, and you know, use it for whatever, whatever else that you like. And, you know, there's living off the land and PowerShell was great for that. We took a few generations of PowerShell before Microsoft, you know, 
added some controls to allow admins to, you know, either see the scripts that were being executed and monitor it or block it or whatever else. And this is kind of where we are with this cloud automation for Windows. Mm. Is, yeah, it's going to take people a while to realize that, you know, they are not using one computer anymore. They are using a, the Microsoft Cloud mainframe and they have a dumb Windows terminal on their desk. Um, and people can use that to do whatever the hell they want. So great research. There's some confusion that it's a, you know, post-intrusion automation tool being used for exactly what it's intended for. Uh, so it's a little bit, you know, some of the write-ups are not great in that respect. But I think if you're a pen tester, you know, red teamer, admin, understanding what's going to come down the pipe when you roll Windows 11 everywhere, uh, this is probably good to be yeah. across. And probably yeah. genuinely useful for sysadmining. Well, I mean, I got the PowerShell vibes, right? Like off yes, this, it's yeah, the same exactly. sort of thing. It's like a, yeah, post-compromise thing that you can do fun stuff with. But I just I just found it a bit interesting. So congrats to Michael Barguri, uh, who is the founder of uh, security firm Zenity. And people can check the wired write-up of that. I, I did an interview last night for an upcoming sponsored thing with Thinkst. They've actually released something really cool, I think, which is a token, uh, which is a registry hack for Windows, which sends an alert when someone runs a command. Uh, well, not a command, actually, a binary or an executable on a Windows box that like they wouldn't normally run. So like IP config or who am I? The sort of commands, <laughs> uh, the sort of the sort of uh, uh, binaries that um, uh, attackers run as soon as they get on a box. Did you see this uh, doing the rounds this morning? Because they just yeah, yeah, it's 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 a great idea because it's uh, you know it's not foolproof, but it doesn't need to be right it just yeah. needs to catch you when you're still real early on you don't know where you are you don't know what's in play and yeah running who am i 100 percent normal thing to do for it's, an attacker it's, it's and a zero percent normal it's thing to do memory. yes exactly exactly yeah so it's just a, it's the classic like really smart straightforward simple thing that we expect from from Haroon and Thinkst. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, good job. No, it's, it's, uh, and that was uh, Casey Smith sub T who uh, came up with that one but it's you know it's just it's cool. I like it. And yes, and it's yeah. it sort of ties into that whole thing about like some of the, and I mentioned this in the interview that I did with Haroon, but, you know, I know pen testers who these days, they have to worry about, well, you know, are we about to hit a things to canary when they're, when they're post-compromised, <laughs> yes, right? So yes, there's exactly, always that yes. like nervous moment when they're about mm -hmm. to do something to see if they're going to get snapped. And now they can't even run Who Am I uh, without <laughs> worrying that it's, you know, that it's reg hacked to send an alert to the SOC, right? So... Yeah, Haroon's the worst. <laughs> it's fun stuff. Uh, we've got a write-up from Dan Gooden here, which uh, is a bit of a deep dive on the uh, uh, the crew that's, or, or individual maybe, that's been behind um, some of these supply chain attacks on PyPy, just doing trash like crypto miner stuff. But, you know, a bit of interesting background here. Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's interesting to see the sort of evolution of, you know, this set of malware, which apparently has some ties to like Robux, the, the current in-game currency and, and Roblox uh, scams and that kind of thing, and see it escalating from, you know, typo squatting to account compromise, um, you know, into into PyPy and then kind of more sophisticated supply chain stuff. And it does kind of feel like a one-person you know, sort of operation. But yeah, interesting to see that it, you know, is, is sort of scaling up in complexity and reach. Australia-based journalist uh, Jeremy Kirk uh, has a good write-up in Data Breach today uh, about a one of these, um, uh, you know, one-time password phishing, you know, real-time phishing proxies. Uh, he, he's got a great write-up on one that's been dubbed uh, Evil Proxy here. This is just, you know, another example of why we need FIDO auth, right, and why the shift is actually on for real because these phishing kits are really good now. Uh, they make one-time passwords basically useless and, you know, it's it's over, uh, basically. But this is yet another example of why that is so. 
Yeah, it's actually it's a great example. This one of the you know crime underground innovating and making something that used to be really you know sort of not technically difficult, but just fiddly to keep working uh, into a productized, you know, as a service offering for doing, you know, person in the middle proxying uh, to, to capture these grids. And it makes it much more, you know, reachable for the average, you know, the average hacker uh, to just pay a bit of money, use the service rather than having to mess with it yourself. And, you know, the techniques are old, but making it usable at scale and dealing with the you know, if you're providing it as a service, dealing with the constant changes that Google's always making to their login process. And, you know, it's just a, it's a real pain, you know, for a shop like us to maintain these tools if you only use them, you know, once a month or whatever, because every time you use it, Google's changed something that's a bit rot. Whereas this, continuously maintained as a service, well supported. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, slick. It sounds like you want to be a customer, basically. Yeah, right? like, why, why don't you just beg them to go legit and instead of charging, you know, a uh, hundred bucks for criminals to use it, they can charge a thousand bucks for pen testers to use it. And the funny thing is they actually do sort of describe it as a as part of a, you know, like fishing training service in some of the forums. Yeah, that is not the so, legal defense you think it is. No, uh, no, no, it's basically. really not. But yeah, I mean, if you want to go legit and sell it as a service for pen tests, we'd probably buy it. <laughs> Now, this next one is from Lily Hay Newman at Wired and zeroes in on some semantic uh, research, which is pretty interesting, looking at the prevalence of hard-coded auth credentials in uh, apps, right? And this is a problem. I actually had a, uh, a call earlier this week with uh, Dylan from Trufflehog, uh, and he runs the company around that truffle sec, and they do secrets discovery. And yeah, this is a problem, right? Like the amount of just secrets out there, whether they're hard-coded creds, uh, whether they're, uh, key, you know, API keys, things like that. This is something that we hoped would get better over time. But unfortunately, just the proliferation of software everywhere eating the world means that, yeah, this is still an issue. And this is a good write-up on, um, on a part of that. Yeah, this is just, you know, it's a real problem at scale. Like we're building software so quickly and there's so many apps for everything and so many APIs for everything. And like the cloud authentication model is still complicated and new and different in every case. And, you know, if you're an app developer, getting to the point where you, you know, need to understand the plumbing of how every authentication thing works and what a particular token grants and uh, and so on, like that's really complicated. And, and this is in most cases app developers using SDKs for other services or APIs for other services. And, you know, they don't have time to stop and think about what some third-party API they use how they've structured their AWS, you know, permission models and whether their keys are meaningful. So, you know, it may not be data that you care about at all. And, and some of the examples they've come up with are, you know, where, you know, there's some third-party service, you know, and it's effectively, you know, not multi-tenanted. And so you've got, you know, one app that uses some, you know, like AI, I don't know, speech transcription service, shall we say. And that key gets you access to every customer's data that traverses those systems. Because yeah, no one's got time to understand how their cloud supply chain works. And indeed, if you're just using an API or an SDK for some service, you know, it's kind of not your problem. And um, who's got time to do per user provisioning for yes. that sort of service, right? Yeah, ex exactly. Yes. So, I mean, there's so little margin in any of this ecosystem that no one's got time or money or budget um, to do a good job. And it's left to 
you know, pen testers and whoever else down the down the road, hackers, uh, to figure out what all that means and what you can get and so on and so forth. So, yeah, it's good to see research being done because, you know, this is a thing that the developer ecosystem kind of needs to take responsibility for. Well, in an ideal world, having that, uh, having that key wouldn't actually give you access to any data. It would just, you know, you would fling at some text to translate and it would give you a response. But we know that's not, unfortunately, how the world works. No, it is not. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't know how the world works because we're building it faster than we can figure it out. So anyway, that's some interesting work. Um, one that I wanted to quickly touch on, another one from Dan Gooden over at Ars, which is there's a bunch of shady uh, Chrome extensions that have just been uh, revoked or you know taken down. You know, the reason I find this stuff interesting is because, you know, we've seen a big pivot. Uh, attackers these days are very interested in, like, session cookies, right, for things like Gmail and 0365, and this is a good way to get them. Uh, this is a really good way to get them, and I feel like security tooling isn't really good at spotting malicious JavaScript in browser extensions that are, that are going to be able to get that job done for the attacker. So I feel like the reason this is worth talking about is we haven't seen too many serious attacks using it. Like we've seen malicious browser extensions used in a post-compromise scenario. Someone gets on the box, they, they might even throw up the extension in some sort of hidden way uh, and then that'll start you know sending cookies off to the to the attacker but in this case we're just seeing stuff that was like actually in the chrome store or whatever the hell they call it uh you know doing doing malicious things so i feel like this is a bit of a gap in security tooling that's probably going to cause us some drama at some point you know what i mean yes yeah i agree completely i mean i've always kind of you know now that the browser is the operating system Chrome extension, browser extensions are kind of like kernel modules, right? They're kind of like, you know, you wouldn't go and run some random kernel module from the internet and stick it in the middle of your operating system. But that's kind of what you're doing with uh, with browser plugins, browser, browser extensions. Um, and, you know, the, the, the browser extensions in this particular case, there was a couple of do like, you know, group Netflix streaming or something useful like that, um, where the malicious behavior wouldn't show up until quite some time after it had either been installed or been running or whatever else, which is there to defeat the sort of, you know, analysis, automated analysis that's done when stuff gets uploaded to these, to the extension, you know, Chrome extension store. Um, and that's, you know, classic AV, you know, anti-sandbox, anti-AV technique from, you know, binary malware. And in JavaScript, obviously, it's so much more difficult because of the, you know, runtime nature of it. So, um, you know, this is just, it's it's just the anti, to me, it feels like the antivirus war is playing out again in slow motion. Uh, and it's the, as you said, because the browser has everything, it's the place that people are going to go to steal the cookies, steal the data. Um, so I think we're going to see more innovation in this and it's going to be an ongoing arms race. Yeah. Um, and browser extensions just make me feel bad, full stop. Yeah, I mean, there's a few that I kind of use uh, for my job, which I kind of have to. And uh, yeah, I, I hate it because they're, you know, they're tiny little projects that, um, you know, probably someone, if they offered the developer 200 bucks, they could take them over. Yes. <laughs> yeah, then, I mean, uh, honestly, yeah. I, I run no browser extensions. I just, I'd, I'd rather look at ads that at least are sandboxed than I would run an ad blocker these days, which is a, uh, yeah. yeah <laughs> crazy times, do. right? It's crazy, crazy times. times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've got a couple of real niche things that I need for, for what I do. And it's, yeah, it's... Uh, Oh boy, makes me a little nervous, makes me a little yes. nervous. Um, now we've got an obituary uh, to get through. Sadly, Peter Eckersley, who was the co-creator of Let's Encrypt, has passed away, uh, aged 43. Tremendously sad, apparently. I, I, I believe um, he had been diagnosed with cancer and there was some, uh, what's been described as uh, pre-op 
complications or something. Uh, but uh, you know, all all un, all happened very very quickly. And um, yeah, so Vale Peter Eckersley, who you know certainly made an impact. Yes, yeah, he really a long time contributor to you know so many interesting projects around crypto and for the the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Um, you know, the fact that Let's Encrypt. Uh, and the changes in the SSL and, and you know CA ecosystems uh, have been so positive over the last few years. I mean, you know, it's obviously still trashy, but it's way better than it used to be when you had to pay you know nine hundred dollars or whatever for a you know magical cert from a CA that then really didn't do anything better um, than you know than a free one would end up doing. Um, and just you know, there's been so much work in bringing crypto cryptography to the masses in a way that's workable and usable uh, and protects people's privacy and yeah he was involved in in so much of that so yeah very sad uh, to see him you know go onwards up into the great cloud in the sky yeah yeah no real bummer like he's from uh, melbourne originally too which is where i'm from uh and you know we're roughly the same age and um you know he looks familiar too i feel like i may have bumped into him here and there he he spent time with the eff as well and um yeah it's just just really sad, you know, really sad when people go before their time. Uh, that really sucks. Uh, now, one thing I wanted to do before we uh, wrap up the news segment is uh, do a shout out for the Down Under CTF, which is an upcoming uh, Capture the Flag contest. Uh, they're trying to be the biggest one in this part of the world. And uh, secondary and tertiary students are encouraged to uh, participate. And there's pro anyone can enter, but only secondary and tertiary, you know, like high school and university students uh, will be eligible for the prizes. Uh, I think CCX is a, uh, a sponsor of this one, isn't it, Adam? Uh, I believe so, yes. Yeah, it's yeah. always good to support kids, uh, you know, getting out in the industry. And CTFs are such a great environment to learn, you know, so much fun stuff in this industry. So yeah, always a big supporter of that. Yeah, so the CTF is happening in 16 days and 8 hours and 35 minutes from now. Uh, so if you want to get some more information, you can head to downunderctf.com uh, and uh, and register. So I'd encourage uh, any of the students listening, certainly, uh, who want to have a crack, you know, go get involved because as Adam says, it's a, uh, it's a great way to learn. Mate, that's actually it for the week's news. Uh, it's a pleasure as always to chat to you, my friend. And uh, yeah, we'll do it all again next week. You yeah, certainly will. Thanks so much, Pat. And I'll see you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now. And in this week's show, uh, we are talking to Corelight's federal CTO, Gene Schaefer. Corelight, of course, uh, makes a network sensor, uh, operates at great scale. It's uh, There's an open source version called Zeke. You can check them out at corelight.com. Uh, but yeah, Jean works as Corelight's federal government specialist. Uh, she spent something like 33 years in government herself, uh, including uh, as a CISO. And uh, she's here today to talk about why federal government in the United States is very much its own kettle of fish when it comes to requirements or specific requirements. Uh, but I wanted to start her off by asking her about the US government's executive order on zero trust. Is anything actually moving yet? And here's what Jean had to say. So the executive order is also going to be, is always going to be sort of the vision. Here's what we want you to talk about. Underneath the executive order, they have released a whole bunch of directives and memos and everything else that has more specific dates and exactly what they want um, the federal government to actually be marching toward. Um, so like one of the um, memos that they've put out is directed at um, logging, right? Um, the log files. And they've actually given the government, hey, we want you to make sure you're capturing this data. Um, and we want it done within 12 months. And then they've 
given you another set of data and they said, okay, we want this done within two years. So they are setting some time frames. What I am not real clear on is an enforcement mechanism for what happens when the agencies really haven't been given that. Um, from the federal government point of view, that they're always looking at this, and although they have some plans and stuff, they really haven't got a, a influx of funding and money to actually go off and do that. So they are a little bit struggling at times to figure out how are they going to fund these initiatives, even though they might have their plan of how they want to implement that. So I guess what we're talking about, though, is the the zero trust memo, and then the subsequent, oh well, the EO, and then the subsequent memos. That seems to be, from what you're telling me, what's driving uh, changes to U.S. government, uh, you know, IT procurement uh, uh, guidelines or, or requirements, right? So, so I guess, I guess yep. what I'm asking is, like, is this the biggest movement we've seen on this in a while? Because it sounds like it is. It absolutely is a, is a big way forward. Um, it's, it is setting some deadlines. It is actually giving them more of, like, implementation plans of how – to actually get to that zero trust architecture. Because remember, when you talk about zero trust, um, it, it really is a, more of a philosophy and an architecture um, that each agency can then decide how they want to implement it. But it is giving them those big rocks of what they should go after. So when it comes to network network detection, uh, you know, tech, right, such that yep. Corelight makes, like what are, the, what are the requirements that are kind of unique to federal government as opposed to, to, you know, private sector buyers? So I'm not sure we actually have unique requirements. Remember, so the Corelight is based on Zeek, which is the open source, the community that is used by folks around the world. So what Corelight is bringing to the table is it has commoditized the implementation of Zeek and Sericata and Smart PCAP all within one product and has done the integration so that you can actually use it at scale and at the um, size and velocity of the government size networks that we're talking about rather than much smaller businesses. So with that, what we're actually doing is taking that network data and we're giving you enough of the context of what that data is in the network to actually produce that evidence. And so whether you're a threat hunter, you're an incident response, or you're just the first-line analyst um, in your security operations center, once you understand what that evidence is giving you, you can kind of help understand exactly where there may be an issue and have a much quicker time to actually go address that problem rather than just digging through reams and reams of data trying to figure out, oh my God, I'm getting all these alerts, but what do they actually mean? Um, Corelight provides you that evidence underneath the alerts so that you can quickly pivot to it, understand your larger scenario, and know exactly what you need to do to go fight whatever problem you, you have on the top of your list. So let me ask you, just going back to, to government stuff, because you, you, know, you were with the federal government, as you said, for 33 years, right? What were the dumb requirements? Because I, I bet you there's like a couple there that you know, were just the bane of your existence that you thought were really dumb. What were the dumbest federal uh, requirements that you had to consistently work around? Some of the ones that come to my mind, 
is this checkbox mentality when they would give you a requirement and say, make sure this product meets these five things, regardless of if those five things are what you actually need to solve your mission or not. Um, mm. It's still something that is needed. Um, so those drove me nuts in that you really couldn't um, explain to the powers of be, the people who truly acquire the products for you um, in the acquisition arm that, yeah, I understand here's the checklist, but three of these things are just irrelevant mm. in my mission space. So I really need the, these two requirements are the ones that I want to base the product on and, so, and purchase that product. So does it feel with like this new executive order and, you know, some of these memos coming now that the US government is finally moving away from the checkbox mentality? Because I understand Absolutely. that. But, you know, at the same time, right, like I understand how that everyone's like, oh, it's checkbox security. It doesn't make sense. But like when you're trying to run guidelines for an organization as big as the US government, if you don't do those checkboxes, you actually wind up in a worse place, right? So you know, Correct. you're kind of, you're kind of done either way, aren't you? Um, but I guess, I guess the question is, you know, are they moving away from that and how are they moving away from that without resulting in people doing insane things? Well, I don't know how you're ever going to stop some people from doing insane things, right? So, yeah. um, even with the check boxes. Yeah, no, good point. Yep. Good point. You, you can't control everyone, Yeah, but I do believe what really has happened over, I would say the last five, six, seven years, um, is you have a lot more people in the workforce who truly understand cybersecurity. So when you have agencies, whether it's the executive order or things coming out from CISA, um, they're giving you a lot of the logic around what some of the requirements are so that when you're taking it within your own agency, you can see kind of where they're trying to do and they're not being as prescriptive as to how you solve that problem, but they're telling you this, this is the direction you need to move toward. That's why, again, um, we talk zero trust architecture. It really is an architecture. It's not a solution that mm. any one vendor or anything else is going to give you. It, it is it is an architecture that you have to look at holistically. Now, where Corelight comes in really well um, is since we are reading the truth from the network, what we're going to be able to do is actually help a lot of the agencies understand in their architecture, are things even being implemented the way they believed they were going to be implemented, right? So we would be able to see things like the VPN connections coming in, and hopefully they're all known VPN connections, right? Or, or we can see if they're sending um, PKI or certificates, the identity-based certificates that are so easy to spoof, if they're not using that properly with those products, we would be able to highlight and see some of that. Mm. And again, according of course, to some of course, of course, once we're in zero trust nirvana, we would hope there's no VPN access being used, but that's another story. You absolutely <laughs> would hope that. But again, right, we're going to have a decade or so till everybody can get there. So you're going to have to look at what you have now and migrate in that direction. And everybody doesn't have enough money, so you're going to have to pick and choose what you're going to implement along the path. I, I just want to follow up on something that you said there that was really interesting, and it totally makes sense, which is one of the reasons the 
requirements are getting less prescriptive is because they're, you know, people know what they're doing now. And that hits home because I've been in this field for something like 20 years, right? And I, I just, you just triggered a memory for me. I went to RSA, I've been to RSACon, I think once or twice, right? And I remember going mm-hmm. to one of the vendor parties, I tagged along with a bunch of other journos, and there was a real heavy federal government presence among the party goers at this thing. And I got chatting to some of them and like it really, you know, I spend my time in this bubble with people who really know the field well. And it was somewhat alarming when you start meeting some, like literally CISOs from large US government departments and you're talking to them and <clears throat> it's pretty clear they don't didn't back then have much of an understanding of the core issues at all. I mean, at all. And uh, it, right. it, was, it was somewhat mind-boggling, right? It feels to me that certainly over the last five years, what we've seen is an influx of people into management roles who may have actually been in technical roles in the five years leading up to that. And now we're just seeing, you know, so many of these young people who were young, not anymore, who were young, have now matured into these leadership roles and we're in a much better place. Is that, is that kind of what's happened? I think that absolutely contributes a lot to it. I think the other thing is six, seven years ago, I mean, look at the news today, all of the cyber threats and the vulnerabilities that are identified, whether it be solar winds or whether um, colonial pipeline, but all of those events are actually publicized out in um, what I would call the the normal yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's gone channels, mainstream, not in right? The yeah. Tech channels, yeah. Right. And so the reason for that is because the threats continue to move up and they just are on such a larger scale that it's becoming much more common to have it as an everyday lingo that more people can understand. And because of that, there's much more focus on the defenders to actually make sure they're implementing their security practices so they don't become the next headline that's going to happen on the news. Yes, I guess guess it's a combination of some of the the technical people going into leadership roles, but also leaders actually just existing in an environment where more is known, more is discussed, there's more weight given to the subject. So they're like, okay, I need to know what I'm doing here. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that contributes to a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's interesting. So, look, you said you'll think it'll take 10 years to to do a move towards a more sort of zero trust, you know, a true zero trust style architecture in in FedGov. I think that's about right, but I also think it's a pessimistic (laughs) assessment. Um, Why do you think the, the FedGov won't be able to get there quicker? Because there's so many different agencies and organizations within the FedGov, right, when you really look at it. And to get all of those people on the same page and pointed in the the same direction so that the implementations that they do are consistent and give you kind of that level security posture that we want – I just think that's that's a big undertaking. Mm. Um, I don't think it's that people aren't going to push forward quicker, and I don't think it's that they're not trying. Um, I just think the Fed government is so large to get everybody to move in the same direction just takes time. All right. Well, Jean Schaefer, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. It's been uh, very, very interesting. Thank you, Patrick. 
That was Jean Schaefer, Corelight's federal CTO there. And big thanks to her for that. And big thanks to Corelight for being a Risky Business sponsor. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow with the Seriously Risky Business podcast in the Risky Business News RSS feed. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Thank you.